glory, all power goes to him. The clearer picture we get of God, the greater our desire and the greater our ability to give him all glory and all honor and all power. We're continuing to work our way through John because the key to life is getting a clear picture of who God is. And the big idea is that God loves us. But the, the essence of our journey of faith is getting a clearer view of God. That's what this gospel is about. 33 years of Jesus' life, 21 chapters that John's talking about, and the real pinnacle of that is those last three days. But that's what life and faith are about. So we're picking up the text. We're going to pick it up in John chapter 5, verse 19. But we really have to understand this is in the context of what he's already written in the, the first few verses, first 18 verses of chapter 5, where we left Jesus a couple of weeks ago. You remember he was in Jerusalem and he went to the pool and there were all kinds of folks, the way it's translated in the ESV is invalids, blind, uh, couldn't walk, all kinds of maladies. And they sit by the pool and they believed when the water stirred, the first one in was going to be healed. So Jesus walks up to the lame guy, one of the lame guys there. He'd been lame 38 years, John tells us. 38 years. 38 years. Don't know if he was born that way or if there was an accident in life. Don't know. But 38 years and Jesus said, hey, would you like to be healed? I think. The answer to that is pretty obvious. He says, hey, there's nobody to put me in the pool and the water stir. There's always somebody that beats me. He says, hey, you're healed. Pick up your mat and walk. Now, it happens to be the Sabbath, which is a Saturday. And some Jewish leaders see this guy who's been lame for 38 years. And they say to him, what are you doing carrying your mat? On a Sabbath, you are breaking God's law. Now, here's what I would expect him to say. I was lame. I don't know if they knew it or not. I was lame, and this guy just healed me. Not what he says. What he says is, don't blame me. There was a guy that told me to carry my mat on the Sabbath. Jesus runs into him at the temple and says, hey, Stop your sinning or worse things may happen to you. I think he's talking about or you're going to be judged if you don't actually come to faith. What is the lame man who was lame for 38 years? What does he do after he finally figures out who it was that healed him? He runs to the Jewish officials and says, there he is. There's the guy that caused me to break the Sabbath. We're picking up our text We'll go back to three verses in John. And this is why the Jews who were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, I say, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here's what's going on. These Jews now, these officials come to Jesus and they're accusing him of not obeying God the Father. He healed the lame guy. He's doing work. He's getting a lame guy to do work according to their definition. And they're accusing him of disobeying God. And Jesus is trying to help these folks who are experts in the Old Testament understand. And I think there's an important lesson that we're going to talk about here today for us there. That they got a lousy view of God. Now if they get that view corrected and it touches their hearts, their understanding leads to touch their hearts, oh, life could not be better. He's trying to help them understand if they continue with this lousy view of God, things are not going to go well. Now the important thing, one of the important things for us to remember here is these guys aren't trying to attack faith in God. They're defending God. These are the experts in the Old Testament defending God. An accurate understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is, is essential to our experiencing joy in this life and the next. But the challenges going on here, I heard some of you laugh. I think it's funny. And there's an element of funniness as we go through the text. But understanding who Jesus is, is absolutely essential. And it's the key to our life. God's been so good to us, like everybody in the history of time, we ultimately want our circumstances changed when life gets tough. I would like my circumstances in lots of ways changed. But God says the answer to being happy in life is having a relationship with me that's rooted in a clear understanding of who I am. So, Father, keep me true to these words that Jesus uh, spoke to help us to help those Jewish officials, to help everybody. Life is hard. Life is challenging. There is just stuff every day, every week. 
Our prayer is that you will enliven our hearts, our spirits, and our minds here today. Though a lot of these ideas are familiar to most of us, I pray that they would penetrate our heads and our hearts more thoroughly. That we might experience this more fully and express what it means to walk with you more fully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jesus is going to use four fours here to lay this out. He's going to use this preposition four times as he begins four sentences. And this is key. Literarily, we can look at this. These are four big ideas. Here's what he's saying. You guys are accusing me of disobeying God. Huh? Here's my response to your ag- accusations and your allegations. The first one, I'm just doing what the Heavenly Father does. You're accusing me of breaking the Sabbath, but all I'm doing is what the God the Father does. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Here's the first one. Four. Four. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So in other words, you're accusing me of working on the Sabbath. Guess what? God the Father works on the Sabbath. Now what these guys have done is they've taken these Sabbath Old Testament principles and commands and they have perverted them. If you go look at the Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud, it came out in about the second century CE, so it's after this, but they're, uh, based upon their oral traditions, they made rules after rules after rules after rules after rules about it was to keep the Sabbath. They made the Sabbath, following these rules, a means of work. They so perverted God's intent of what the Sabbath is, is, is supposed to be. And Jesus is simply trying to tell him, I'm just doing what my father does. Back in verse 17, we read it and we looked at it two weeks ago. But Jesus answered them, my father is working till now and I am working. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 121. It says there, God doesn't ever slumber. And it's in the context of taking care of us. While you guys were sleeping, while I was sleeping, God was working. Now, just to be clear, God doesn't get tired. There's a lot of differences between us and God. God doesn't get tired. And he never stops working for us. One of the craziest things that Christianity's done is got us primarily working for God. Here's the cool part. He's working for our benefit. He's working for our good. And and, and that's what Jesus wants us to see. Now the Sabbath comes from Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now based upon this, 
Theologians for oh, centuries have argued about what kind of work does God do on the Sundays? Setting up this as a model for us because we need to be restored and we need to rest. But God is working for our good. So I give you here my definition of Sabbath. It was intended to be a day of rest, to be restored in God's presence and love, to trust in God's provision and care. Now I'm going to tell you, I think I'm old and we wrestle with what the Sabbath is and how it's to be practiced. And I think we have a hard time, those of us who grew up mostly with a five-day work week and 40 hours of work, we have a hard time appreciating what this meant originally. This was given to the folks at Mount Sinai. Moses, you guys heard of the, the Ten Commandments? That's where that's from. These people had come out of Egypt. What was life like in form in Egypt? Anybody remember? Seven days a week. You go back in history, people to survive, to eat, had to work seven days a week. That's just what you had to do. I love where we love, and everybody loves the weekend, right? Thank God it's Friday. The people who originally received the Sabbath thing, they couldn't imagine what we live with. It was a big step of faith to keep the Sabbath. Because you worked when the sun got up and you went to bed when the sun went down just to eat. And God said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to take one day for your mental, emotional, physical, and most importantly, spiritual health. And I want you to rest. I want you to rest in my presence. This was a huge step. Remember out in the desert and he's going to have manna and they say, six days you pick up manna, not the seventh. You're going to trust me that I'm going to take care of you if you only work six days. Because you need to be restored. You need to be refreshed. And these religious leaders took this day of rest and they made it a day of work by coming up with all these rules to try and justify themselves by honoring the Sabbath. Now, that's what I grew up with. Now, I love my mom and dad. They're both with Jesus now. Sunday growing up, I still have strong feelings about this. Was my least favorite day of the week. My dad was a pastor. We had to leave home early and go to church. An hour before anybody else was there was none to do. Then I went to a Sunday school class where retrospectively, it's clear to me, they were giving me ideas that were beyond where I was developmentally. I was bored. Then I went and listened to my dad preach. Love my dad. I was bored. And we went home. My mom usually put a, a, a pot roast in the oven that I didn't know till I got married how, how wet and moist pot roast could be because after it sat all morning, it was dry. I just never, I didn't know. My wife made one of them married. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You can have some moisture in this thing. It was like shoe leather, and I love my mom. Sundays, couldn't be employed. Sundays, we were not allowed to play with friends. Sundays, we weren't allowed to watch TV 
unless it was sports. My dad had this one exception in there. I look back, ha! Then about five o'clock, I went back to youth group, which was usually a little more fun, and I was less bored. And then we did an evening service that did exactly what I did on Sunday mornings. My least favorite day of the week, the day of rest. Now, I'm going to share with you, I think that legalistic perspective died out some time ago. Now we just do whatever we want. God has been so gracious to us. Some of us have so much resources. There's at least two days off a week that we don't have to work. And we live in a culture where recreation and being entertained has become one of the biggest parts of our life. And even though we have two days off a week, I don't know how much true Sabbath we enjoy. Where we sit and we be still with God. Sundays are now my favorite day of the week. I want to pull this apart a little bit. They're not my Sabbath. My week revolves around Sundays. Sharia's week revolves around Sundays. Preparing for this. Saturday mornings, I wake up early. My wife is still sleeping. I look at my sermon. Saturday nights, I socialize, but it's not a great time for me. The sermon is rattling around in my head on Saturdays. Wake up Sunday mornings, like this morning at 5, for a couple hours, I look at the sermon, get cleaned up, come to the office, get my mic, get set up. This ain't my Sabbath. I love it. This is a work day for me. My Sabbath, I had somebody suggest here, uh, some years ago, why don't you study from home one day a week? So I study from home. It's the primary time I work on my sermons on Wednesdays. Try to do minimal emails, minimal appointments, minimal phone calls, and minimal texts. Wish Jesus, preparing a sermon, but it's my Sabbath. Now, I love being at the office. There's all kinds of interruptions. The staff will tell you I actually initiate most of them. We got a great staff. Why would I sit in my office and be quiet when I could go hang with somebody and talk about church life? That just doesn't make any sense to me. But I tell you, these last seven years roughly, I love having a day. And what we're not going to do is get legalistic about this. But my fear is even some people coming to church is one of those boxes we may check. Now, we got a lot of staff that we work on Sundays to hopefully provide you some Sabbath rest. Does that make sense? And we love doing it. This is a work day for us. Now, you guys work all week, and I can't express my gratitude on my behalf and on the rest of the staff that we might get to do what we do on Sundays and the rest of the week. But you guys work all week. Our hope is that when you come here, it's a little bit of a Sabbath rest. You get encouraged in God. You get strengthened in your faith. So, on behalf of me and the staff and the elders too, thank you for your giving 
in order that we may do what we do. We count this as a privilege, and please keep doing that, but thank you for what you've done. The rest of God, I'll recommend one book here. I read this, oh, I don't know, several years ago. The best thing I've read on Sabbath, taking away the legalism of all that, be still and know that I am God. Wednesdays have become my day to be still. A whole day for y'all? I don't know. When do we sit and, and be still and enjoy that Sabbath? So, these guys come to Jesus and they say, Hey, you're breaking the law. You're breaking God's law. You're disobeying God. His first point is, <laughs> I'm just doing what the Father, Father does. His second point, hey, I'm specially loved by the Father. Even his using the term Father, of course, they understood what he was meant, denoting a special relationship. So the second four in verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Bigger things are coming. Raising of Lazarus, his resurrection, bigger things are coming. You guys accuse me of breaking God's law, the Father's law. I'm just doing what he does. And he's got a love for me. He loves you all. But he's got a love for me, a relationship with me. You're accusing me of disobeying him. He loves me. You guys couldn't get this more wrong. He adds to that. Oh, this is a big one. I mean, <laughs> you're accusing me of working on the Sabbath. I'm just doing what the Father does. He loves me, and he's given me the power to give life. I healed somebody. That ain't nothing. And I'll give life on the Sabbath if I feel like it. 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And we're going to go on with the text and we're going to notice our responsibility in choosing, but don't miss the times that Jesus references his ability to give life where he would like to give it. You guys are judging me. I'm the guy that gives life. Physical life, spiritual life, eternal life. Folks, there's nowhere else that life comes from but God. And I love his last argument. Because you got, don't miss this. Please don't miss this. I think it's hysterical on one level if it weren't so heartbreaking. They're judging him for breaking the Sabbath. What's he going to tell them? I'm the judge. Having an accurate view of Jesus is so important. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, see who he is, just as they honor the Father, because you can't separate these two. For whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So in judging me, you're judging God the Father. Now some may see here, if you remember back in John 3, 17, right after John 3, 16, the most famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should have perished. For he didn't come into the world. Do you remember to condemn the world? Some may see this as a contradiction. Jesus has always had that authority to be the judge. What he's making clear in John 3, 17, that's not what he came to do when he entered the world. He's going to do that at the end. He came into the world to save. That's why he came into the world. He came into the world to save. But you guys that don't have an accurate understanding of who I am, you're missing it. You're judging me. Shouldn't judge anybody like that. But you really have no idea who you're judging, though you're the experts in the Old Testament. So what's the summary of this? Jesus is God. Make no mistake. That's what Jesus is trying to convey. You're, okay, you're trying, to, you're trying to, 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 to judge me for not disobeying God? That's who I am. Then he's going to move on. The benefits that come with recognizing Jesus. For as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, folks, this is the message of Scripture, the message of John. God loves us. Truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, you evidence that by believing me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So the benefits, we talk about it regularly. Transform from spiritually dead to alive. That's where the forgiveness of sins comes from. That's where the guilt is cleansed. That's where the Holy Spirit enters our life and Jesus becomes our companion all through life. It's that relationship with him that we talk about from which we get the strength to endure through the difficulties of life. If you have no challenges at all right now, may I see your hand? This is where getting this right, though, is so important. And when my circumstances aren't the way I'd like them, make no mistake, I'd like them to change. But the promise of Scripture is that whatever our circumstances are, God is in control and he's using that for our benefit. You know how we know when we believe that? There's a peace and a joy amidst the sorrow, the grief, and the heartache. I'd like my circumstances to change, but here's what eternal life is. It's having that relationship with Christ where we know he's in this with us and he's trying to draw us to himself through this difficulty. And he's trying to use our response, trusting him as an illustration to those who don't trust Christ that there's something really cool about trusting Christ. That's the benefit of seeing Jesus for who he is.
No judgment. This is a big deal in Scripture. A stinking big deal. I'm just going to leave it here. It's coming, and it's going to be nasty for those who don't believe in Jesus. But for those who do, ah, we are good. We are good. And I'm going to tell you, as much joy as there is in walking with Jesus now in this world, when he comes back and there's that day of judgment and there's no judgment for us, there are not words to express how great that's going to be. It's just this life that begins when we come to faith and we believe in him. It starts then. And then when we die or Jesus comes back, it just gets better. That's what it means to walk with Jesus because he loves us, because he's searching for us, because he's trying to draw us to himself. Now, here's what I love about Jesus. These guys are judging him. He gives them a loving, thoughtful Theological response. But he starts with the life. You're judging me would be my temp. You're judging me. Do you know who you're talking to? Obviously not. But he unpacks it for him because he loves him. But in love, he wants them to understand if they don't correct their thinking. There's extraordinary liability. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who here will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Reference to Daniel 7 and being the one. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That resurrection we talk about at the second coming of Christ. Those who have done good because they've believed, don't lose that connection, no work salvation here, but because they love God, they have a desire to do good. Those folks to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now this is one of the truths that is more hotly contested and not believed by a lot of folks who have called themselves evangelical. This truth. This truth that there is a judgment is one that's being diminished and in some folks' theology eliminated. Because God's love. Yes, he is. Here's the essence of that love. That the Father sent the holy righteous judge to pay the penalty and the price. To not believe in Christ and say you're going to be okay is to say God's righteousness and holiness doesn't matter. His character, hmm, core part of it, doesn't matter. This is love that Jesus, the judge, who is going to damn those who do not believe, is the one that paid the price so that we wouldn't have to face that. And there's a lot of folks out there 
perverting what God's love is. Taking a superficial look at this and causing many to believe there's not going to be a judgment. They couldn't be more wrong and it couldn't be a more unloving kind of process. Not spiritually transformed from death to life will face judgment and eternal condemnation. So let's wrap it up here. What are the takeaways for today? Important one. The folks who are devoted to promoting the Jewish faith are the ones that were trying to kill Jesus and judging him. Now, if you read Christian history for extensive periods, church leaders have messed up Christianity. Some of you heard of the Reformation, a guy named Martin Luther? Huge. He just went back to reading the Bible and trying to interpret it accurately. Every generation thinks somehow that we're immune from, pro from potentially misinterpreting it. And we know there are folks out there that don't hold to the Bible. Lord, let's pray for them. I'm talking about those who are devoted to the Bible. Now, if we don't think that we're potentially susceptible to misinterpreting it ourselves, I think we're naive. We, though we hold to it, could be missing it. That's why we strongly encourage you all to read the Bible for yourself. Keep checking this out. It's why a big focus of ours is we want to use principles of language that were designed by God so that when we go to this text, we're getting as close to the real meaning as we can. But to think that we are somehow immune from misinterpreting it ourselves, there ought to be a great humility with which we approach this. Always. We want to be looking for it. We want to be looking for the truth. Having an accurate view of Jesus, of God, is essential to eternal life. I think this idea that you can believe whatever you want about spiritual things and you're okay has been around for a long, long time. That idea has never been more popular than today. <laughs> It's spiritual stuff. This is just a myth. We're people that believe whatever you want and, and you're good. Getting these key elements of the truth of who Christ is is absolutely essential. Now with that said, evangelicals who have a devotion to this, it feels like to me we can sometimes be more focused on being right than promoting Jesus' truth lovingly. Are you following me? In fact, sometimes we fight with ourselves to the death over what I would call fairly inconsequential theological ideas. We want to be right. We want to be right. We want to be right. There's an arrogance that comes with it. Please hear me saying this. Getting the truth of who Jesus is correct is absolutely essential for our life now, for the joy and the peace in this world, and for all eternity. But if you get it right, let me tell you what the primary characteristic will be. Love. If you miss everything I've said today, 
please hear this. We're coming out of a few years where if you're looking at the national media, I don't think there's ever been a worse time in my life to be considered an evangelical than right now. I loved what Drew said last week. We're not here to fight with the world. We're here to fight for the world. Feels like I've been watching a lot of fighting with. Getting excited about less essential issues in life. But even when we're talking about the truth of Jesus, there ought to be a gentleness, a calm, a peace. We're going to go through it, John. Just look how we dealt with these guys. You guys are judging me? I'd have been irate. He just lovingly pulls apart the truth. We won't ever compromise. Please hear me say this. We will never compromise on the essential truth of who Jesus is. Do you all hear that? But we're going to be gentle. We're going to be loving. But we will stand. We will stand on the truth because it's essential for people's lives and we're not going to fight with folks we're just not going to and stand for the truth of who God is told you a couple weeks ago about this restaurant Julie and I go down to at the beach we're down there yesterday and that guy calls me pastor <laughs> from across the restaurant, the server. Some of you don't remember the story, it's okay. He came over and I said, would you please not do that? <laughs> it changes the way people interact with me when they know I'm a pastor. And I've gotten to know some folks down here, I just like to get to know them. And quite frankly, how the world views pastors right now, uh, it's not a profession that is thought of all that highly, it feels like to me in the world. To our experience, we're going to have joy in this life. Folks, it's rooted with a clear view of Jesus, how devoted he is. Guys, he was working for us last night. We were all sleeping. Sleeping! I don't care how big your problem is, when you were asleep, you weren't working on it. But God was. That's our God. That's who he is. Then to our expression. I look at these religious leaders in John. Not only are they missing it, but they're causing everybody else to get a wrong idea. We want people to see Jesus for who he is. Let's not add rules to the gospel. No legalism. No legalism. Now, from my youth, this feels like to me not much a problem today. You with me? I don't see that many legalistic tendencies. I see people, ah, just feels like to me maybe that pendulum has swung too far the other way that anything goes in life and gee, we're okay. You know, you saw there, those who do good. By that, those who love Jesus and point other people to Jesus and live in a way that other people see Jesus. That's what I'm sure, I'm convinced Jesus means. And then let's not diminish the truth of the gospel. You guys have heard me several times reference what I consider to be the biggest threat to the evangelical faith, where we sit spiritually. 
you hear, you hear me use these terms, post-Christianity, uh, um, uh, post-evangelicalism, progressive Christianity. In my estimation, that's the biggest threat. There are a bunch of folks that have come from our evangelical world that are diminishing the authority of Scripture, particularly this idea that there is a judgment. It's dangerous. It's out there. Big idea. God loves us. He loves us. He loves us. Jesus works on Sunday. God works on Sunday. That's what God does. Jesus is loved by God and Jesus loves us. Jesus has the power of life to all of us. I'm hoping that's everybody here. If you're not there, please come talk to me. I would love if you're still trying to figure this Jesus guy out. He has given us life now. Eternal life is our possession now. And we're going to face no judgment in the future. But for those who don't love him, there's going to be a judgment. So we're going to enjoy everything we can about Jesus now. Let me tell you, other than enjoying Jesus, the second greatest pleasure in this life is helping other people experience the pleasure of knowing Jesus. That's the second greatest one. Then he's given us a boatload of others. Well, the others sometimes creep into one and two. He wants us to enjoy all this other stuff. But the best thing is him, and the second best thing is helping other people. So in every interaction, we're trying to live in a way that manifests that we treasure Jesus and we get who he is. Because there ain't anybody, there's nobody better. And how will people know we love him? What's the primary picture? One word, starts with an L, ends with an E. This is for some of these guys. We love others. That's how they know. But that sometimes means loving them enough to speak the truth. Not so we can prove we're right, but so that we can help them come to understand the importance of loving Jesus. Thanks, Father, for loving us. Thanks for sending Jesus. Thanks for the life that we have in him. Oh, you are too good. You have been too good to us. My prayer is again, Father, when the challenges of life tend to overcome us and tempt us to question whether or not you love us, I pray that you would continue to give us a fuller, fuller picture of your grace and of your love. And as how, as Paul has said, you are committed to working in all circumstances for our good. Because sometimes it's just hard to believe. But convince us, Father, continue to deepen our picture, our understanding, and our experience of your love. Because our confidence is, ah, it will leak out of us, Father. That's our prayer.